0: long time ago grace fellowship Um, he is one of the people who founded cambridge school right down the road here uh, and uh, he is the uh, eighth grade humanities teacher so basically the culminating experience of a cambridge school student is to have dr burrish as their teacher uh, as they finish up there Uh, his uh, phd is from uva And uh, he also teaches at uh, Towson University, formerly known as Towson State University, formerly known as Towson State Teachers College. But uh, he's anthropology, not history. So will you please give a warm welcome to Scott Bruch? Thank you, Jason. You're very brave. Um, I'm used to having an hour and 15 minutes. And if we don't finish what I planned for that day, then I come back. Um, the next class, and we just pick it up where we left off. So I thought, wow, 20 minutes, that's really challenging. But now, here you can do it in 10. So, so wow, I got, I got twice the time. Um, and I was also reminded as I was preparing this, and I love this passage. I mean, being able to talk about the Beatitudes and the lead-in to the Sermon on the Mount, and I love the series that you're in. Um, I was reminded. Jesus' entire sermon, okay, if you deliver the Sermon on the Mount and you really talk slow, the entire sermon still only takes 13 to 14 minutes, so, okay, now I'm not Jesus, <laughs> but I don't think extra time is going to help make up that difference, so, and then also I um, have a dear friend um, who's my spiritual director and Anglican priest, and so when I, he heard, you know, I got 20 minutes. I said, Do you have any advice? And he said, Yeah, take a couple minutes, help them feel comfortable with you, then have one point and one story, and you're good to go. So, so here's my point. Okay, and this is the main point. This is hope if you take nothing else away, um, this is the heart of God for you. And his heart is, is our Father to bless us. He desires that we would flourish and that we would realize the well-being that he intended for us from the time that he conceived us and created us. And that well-being is in relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, with the Trinity. They've invited us into that relationship of love. This is the essence of the kingdom of God, that Jesus came to explain, to display, to offer um, to us. And the blessedness that he desires for us, that well-being is available to every one of us, to every person we prayed for this morning, in every situation, in every circumstance, regardless of what is happening in our lives at this moment or in their lives. Not that God is not about putting things right, but our blessedness, our well-being, doesn't depend on some future hope. It's something that he desires for us now. Um, There was a day, about a century ago, where a professor at Harvard could share something along the same lines. This is from George Herbert Palmer in 1929. And he was concluding a series of lectures on ethics, a distinguished speaker series. And this is what he said, and it speaks to the heart of what Jesus is expressing to us in the Beatitudes and Sermon on the Mount. He said, Ethics is certainly the study of how life may be full and rich, and not so as is so often imagined, how we may be restrained and meager. Those words of Jesus announcing that he had come in order that men might have life and might have it abundantly, are the clearest statement of the purposes of both morality and religion, of righteousness on earth and in heaven. Um, So, how are the Beatitudes most often understood? How are they most often taken? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Is being poor the condition that we need to experience in order to have the kingdom of heaven? Do we need to mourn in order to be comforted in the sense of the comfort is a result of our mourning. So all we have to do, to put it another way, is all we have to do is to all become poor in spirit and physically, and then we get the kingdom. Is our reward for being poor? Or is it all we have to do is stop being happy and choose to be sad, and then we will be comforted? Is that what Jesus was saying? That's how it's so often um, understood. So is it a blessing to be poor? You know, this has led some people to dismiss Jesus' teaching and the Sermon on the Mount as something that's not relevant to us, that these are nice, pretty words, and they're about some future reality, but they're not for us, they're not for now. It's not realistic. It's not practical. Jesus really didn't know what he was talking about. Well, fortunately... Um, there are those who have looked at the whole of Jesus' teaching and looked at the Beatitudes and looked at the Sermon on the Mount in the context of his life and what he was teaching and are able to point us to the hope that Jesus actually intended for us, that this is supposed to be good news. This is not supposed to be something unattainable, impossible. Alfred Edersheim, a New Testament scholar, Said in the Sermon on the Mount, the promises attaching, for example, to the so called Beatitudes must not be regarded as the reward for spiritual states with which they are respectively connected, not yet as their result. It is not because a man is poor in spirit that his is the kingdom of heaven, and in the sense that one state will grow into the other or be its result. Still less is the one, comfort, the reward for mourning, or the kingdom, the reward for being poor. The connecting link in each case is Christ himself, because he has opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. Okay, so let's look at the context of what Jesus taught. And then I want to um, share with you what has come to capture for me the spirit of the Beatitudes from a man and his family who have changed my life. So first, what was Jesus primarily teaching about when he came? And what leads up to the Sermon on the Mount? Well, if we go back to Matthew 4:17. Um, Prior to the Sermon on the Mount, it says, From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, is at hand, is now here. It has come near, it is here. Um, So that's his fundamental message that the kingdom of God, the reign of God, is available to us. It's now here. And because of that, What should our response be? Repent. And the essence of repent is not to feel sorry for what we've done wrong, but to reconsider our plan for our lives, to reconsider our strategy for life in light of this new reality that, oh my gosh, if the presence of God and his reign is available to me, Should I consider living my life differently than I have been living it apart from him? So that's the proclamation that Jesus made. Then, um, lest people think that these are just pretty words, at the end of Matthew 4, leading into the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus expressing the reality of this kingdom. So verses 23 to 25. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. So he's proclaiming this offer, and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And when Jesus saw the crowds, he goes up on the mountainside and begins to teach the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. So Jesus didn't just talk about the kingdom. He manifested it. And so these people who are now hearing Jesus declare the Beatitudes leading into the Sermon on the Mount. These were the ones that had been demon-possessed, that had suffered from various diseases, um, who had come from all over, and they had experienced the reality of the kingdom. They experienced well-being. They experienced deliverance and hope. And so it's to these people that Jesus now speaks. Okay, now, I am a college professor, so I'll just throw out this... This one one tidbit that I can't resist, and and then we'll move um, to the story that will illustrate this main point. Jesus is an unbelievable, masterful teacher, and in this 13-minute sermon, he answers the four most important questions that every great teacher must answer. And here are those questions. First, what is the nature of reality? Well, he's already declared that and demonstrated it, that the true nature of reality is there is this unseen king who rules an unseen kingdom, which is greater than the physical reality that we see, and it's available to us. So that's the nature of the reality that we live in. We are not limited to this material world. Okay, second. Second great question every great teacher must answer So, in light of that reality, who is really well off? Who is blessed? So where does Jesus start? He starts with an explanation, a declaration of who's really well off. And if we understand it, drawing on um, people like Alfred Edersheim, what Jesus is saying is if we are connected to him, even the poor in spirit can receive and experience the reality of the kingdom of heaven, that their poverty does not exclude them, their religious poverty, their physical poverty, that even those who are experiencing tremendous gut-wrenching, Grief can experience the immediate comfort that comes from the presence of Christ himself as we receive him and he draws close to us. And you can work your way through the Beatitudes that, again, who's well off? It's those that are in the kingdom. It's not based on any condition. So you go to Luke, and then you got Jesus coming at it from the other side. So who's not well off? Whoa, the rich are not well off because enjoy it now because you're not going to have it later. The happy, oh, laugh now because you're going to be crying later. Again, is he trying to say, so we shouldn't be happy? We shouldn't be materially well off? No. I think what he's trying to get at is don't assume that your well-being depends on your riches, your wealth, um, your current happy circumstances. Okay, then, just to finish the questions, and obviously we don't have time to talk about this now, but to point you in this direction, the other two great questions that every, not great questions, the two really <laughs> critical questions that every great teacher needs to answer is, who is truly a good person? Um, and really, really, We do want to be good. We want to know that our life matters and that what we did mattered and that we are fundamentally decent, good people. And so, who is a good person? What does a good person look like? And then that's the bulk of the rest of the the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' Plain. And the essence of it is, it's people who love from their heart. They're truly good people. It's not all this external behavior and stuff that we do. And then the fourth question, okay, I see what a good person looks like. How do I become that person? And Jesus ends, it's beautiful, he ends the Sermon on the Mount with the picture of the wise man who builds his house upon the rock. And what is the rock? It's the person who doesn't just hear what Jesus says, but actually dwells on it, meditates on it, incorporates it into their lives, and starts to live it, to do it in light of this reality. So here we have the greatest teacher with the greatest answers to the four toughest questions. Um, I love sharing this with my Cambridge eighth graders is we send them off to high school where they go from this wonderful Christ-centered environment where their teachers know them and love them, and then they go to the whole spectrum of high schools, and it's not long before they're going to the whole spectrum of colleges, um, and in many of those places, they're not known, they're not loved in the same way, and in many of those places, their love for Jesus is not encouraged, and so, um, as we send them off, one of the things i love, love to share with them is um, a quote from Dallas Willard, uh, who is a professor in philosophy at the University of Southern California, and who thought a lot about the kingdom of God, um, and a lot of what I'm sharing with you this morning has been greatly influenced by his teaching. And um, he would relate that he would have philosophy students at USC that when they discovered that he was a follower of Christ, would come and said like, really? Like why do you follow Jesus? And he's like, well, who else do you suggest? And then he'd move into a dialogue with them comparing Jesus's answers to these important questions to what are Buddha's answers, or what are Muhammad's answers, or what are Darwin's answers, or who who is it that you're looking to? Um, And let's compare their responses. And really, I don't think you're going to find a better set of responses that are really true to life and what it really means to flourish and be well-off than Jesus' answers. Okay, so, now this story. My living image of the Beatitudes. If I could have the the first picture, please. Um, This is Carlos Vargas. Uh, One of the the beauties of getting to teach eighth grade at Cambridge and of helping to design the curriculum is I wove in to the curriculum from the time I began teaching eighth grade that we get to spend a week in a squatter community in Nogales, Mexico, just across the border from Nogales, Arizona, with wonderful people like Carlos. Now, you look at this picture, and you look at that smile, and that gives you some taste that this is one of the happiest, funniest um, men I know. But let me tell you where Carlos comes from. Carlos comes from a very poor area, seven hours south um, in Navajoa, from a very poor family. So poor that his educational opportunities were very meager, so he quickly gave up on school. He left home at the age of 13 and came to the border, hoping to find a life that was better than what was available to him in Navajo as he tries to, to make his way on the border, and he's, he's a very talented man, I mean very talented with, with stonework and masonry, which is now displayed at Kiram House, the air, the place where we get to live when we go to um, Nogales, Mexico, um, but there weren't people just waiting, looking for him to offer him Jobs, And so, very early on, he learned that one way to cope with the pain is alcohol, and so he began to drink significantly. Along the way, God blesses him with Celia, a beautiful wife, and three daughters. Um, But he found himself often drunk, passed out in the squatter community. Is it great to be poor? Did he experience well-being because he was poor? Not at all. Um, In fact, he'll share that the low point in his life was when all he had for shelter for his wife and his three daughters was a tarp. And all he had to feed them were hot dogs. And it was the rainy season, and it was windy, and he's trying to make a small fire to cook these hot dogs, and the low point is when the wind blows over the tarp, the rain puts out the fire, and all they have to eat are cold hot dogs. I mean, you can imagine for a man to not be able to care for your wife, to care for your children. So move forward a couple years. Now we're 10 years ago. Uh, A man from Baltimore originally, Brian Donahue, uh, many of you know his family, um, has this vision to connect with a Mexican church and to provide an opportunity for Americans to break out of our cultural box and to engage in a meaningful way in expressing the kingdom of God to the poor. So he connects with Ramon, A Mexican evangelical free pastor who just happens to be a former drug lord who just happened to come to Christ because he went to church with a gun to threaten someone that had taken money from him. Um, And then he hears the gospel, and then his life gets transformed, and so he gives up. I mean, and he was well up, so he had resources. So he gave up resources to live in this squatter community. So Brian connects with him and says, okay, we want to partner with you. So Ramon starts taking Brian around the community. They pick a place where they're going to be able to start to build this, not a community center, but, and, and they kept it very simple from the outside, but beautiful on the inside, a place where Americans could come and use that as a base in partnership with the church to reach out to the community doing things like Habitat for Humanity, home projects, feeding program for, for poor children. And who does Brian see, laying on the side of the road, passed out but Carlos? So Brian and Ramon move in to a transforming relationship with Carlos. And so this smile, part of that smile is, I mean, Jesus gave him his life back. And with that, this partnership where he became the main, has become the main project manager for all the projects that happened in the community. So with his love for people, now he's able to go out and meet the families, identify the families, and be the bridge between what's now become hundreds of Americans that have come down And Mexicans in the community to bring them blessing. So, life in the kingdom is amazing. He's got purpose, um, he's got relationships. His oldest daughter is now entering into her third year of college and getting a degree in education. So, I mean, every dimension of their lives is improved. So it's perfect, right? Well, in the midst of that, Carlos will come to illustrate for me the second beatitude. Because a year and a half ago, well now, two years ago, diagnosis, they'd been blessed with a four-year-old son, David. David's diagnosed with leukemia. And through these rich relationships that God had given him, they were able to afford treatment for David. And at one point, David actually experienced nothing short of a miracle. He had been declared dead, was revived. Um, But he would go on to pass away from leukemia September a year ago. To this day, I was just with Carlos and Celia, his mother. I mean, they are heartbroken And what's happened um, for me and my relationship with them, our family experienced a heartbreaking journey with my wife last year, where surprisingly at the beginning of the year, she's diagnosed with brain cancer, um, and over the course of 10 months, 10 beautiful, rich months, she will come to December and eventually make her transition home. So I go back to Mexico a changed person because I experienced grief on a level that I didn't know was possible is I watched my wife go. Now what has that done for me? So now people I used to avoid because I didn't know what to do with the pain. The first person I wanted to be with was Celia. Now I don't speak Spanish. Never mind, I've been 13 times, but I don't speak Spanish, I don't have an aptitude, and obviously haven't focused enough. So I grab a young woman and said, do you have the time to translate for us? And so we spent over an hour, and really there's not much to say. And I had been relieved of the pressure of having to have something to say, but we shared a common understanding that yes, we both had experienced and continue to experience tremendous grief and pain. But I can't begin to describe to you the many mercies and the many ways that God has met them and met us in our pain. Here's just one example. Oh, and I'm sorry, can you go to the next picture? I'm sorry, because I want you to see David, this beautiful little boy. So Carlos and Celia because of their connection with these Americans and with Brian in the they said, you know what, we want to bring this to Navajoa, which is even poorer. And so they now have this vision to open a kid's cafe to bless these even poorer children in Navajoa. Gifts, in my wife's memory, fully funded, the kids' cafe that's now operational in Navajoa. So yes, we've shared grief. But Carlos will talk about, we now have a couple hundred children that we've given. They don't replace David, but they are an experience of life and well-being in the kingdom. So... How can we enter into this? And again, I can only point you in this direction, and I want to encourage you to pursue a couple resources because I am more convinced than ever, not just from my study of Scripture, but now from my own experience, that this kingdom is real, and it is available, and our well-being does not depend on our circumstances. (laughs) So by way of application, first, I would encourage you to repent. In light of this reality, to reconsider where your well-being lies. And one way to get at this is to honestly start to write your own beatitudes. And start with, and obviously this is the easier part, right? Like, where are the places that are painful? that are hard. Um, and if you go to this one resource that I'm going to recommend to you, The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard, he has an incredible list based on our culture of all the different conditions that we could choose to see as our paths to losing well-being as opposed to opportunities for God to meet us. And then in completing those beatitudes through prayer, through meditation, begin to imagine how could God meet you? How could God meet me? How could he meet us in those conditions? Not with the removal of those conditions necessarily, but how could he meet us there? How could we experience the kingdom? Okay, and then... um, Along with that, and I think we, we can't do this enough, is to keep reflecting on Jesus' pictures of a father who longs to bless us. Go back to number six. Okay, number six, the blessing that God gave Moses to give Aaron to give to the people of Israel. So this goes all the way back. Jesus isn't teaching something new. This is the father's heart to bless with his presence. We see it through the Sermon on the Mount. You get to the end of chapter 5. Why does Jesus ask us to bless our enemies and not curse them? Because the Father blesses the righteous and the unrighteous, and he wants us to be like him and to share his heart. We get to the end of Matthew 6, and he's like, Oh, you silly little ones. Don't you believe that your Father loves you and that he will give you what you need? He knows you need to eat. He knows you need to be clothed. He will take care of you. And I love, and then in Matthew 7, this is all just in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, Okay, you who are evil, like if your son asks you for bread, you're not going to give him a rock. You don't think that your father doesn't delight even more to give you good gifts if you only ask him. The prodigal father. Okay, the parable of the prodigal father, I mean, these are the images, these are the heart, this is the heart of the father, so we need to reflect more on those. And then lastly, if you want to do deeper study, I've already referred to The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. Now, I warn you, I got to spend two weeks with my wife, with Dallas, at a monastery, and we had... All these pastors, seminary trained that were with us, and most of them were there because they had to take this class to get their doctorate. My wife and I were there. We were auditors. We didn't do all the work. We just wanted to be with Dallas. And I'll never forget, like the second day, one of the, one of the um, guys getting his doctorate said, because he, he had no idea who Dallas was, he said, this book is really hard. Like, couldn't you have written something simpler? in Dallas, in his humble, gentle way, said, you know, actually, I intentionally wrote something that you would have to work your way through three times, that there's enough substance there. (laughs) So it's not an easy book, but it's worth the effort. And just chapter four deals with the Beatitudes um, and really flushes these out in a way I can't. And then lastly, for those of you who are um, more visually oriented... Dallas passed away from pancreatic cancer a year ago, May. Um, In March of that year, he was able to give, he had enough energy to give his, do his last public conference. Um, In the very last, with John Ortberg, in the very last session he did, which is about 25 minutes long, is on blessing. In God's heart to bless us, in God's heart that we would be people of blessing. And then he ends that with this powerful blessing of God, and that DVD is available through um, Amazon and any other book ordering. It's called "Living in Christ's Presence." Um, so I recommend those to you. Um, I've given you a lot. Let me let me let me pray for you, Father. Thank you for your heart for us. Thank you, that you really do love us. You always have loved us. You cherish us, and your desire is to pour out blessing upon us. Father, I pray that as only you are able, that you would draw close to each one of us and meet each one of us right where we are. You know where we need hope. You know where we need our images changed you know where we need a vision and where we need your grace to make choices to be able to receive all the good that you desire to pour out on us. So, Father, as Jesus taught us to pray, we ask that your name would be hallowed, it would be adored, and that your kingdom really would come in our lives and that your will would be done here on earth just as it is in heaven to your delight. Amen. Thank you.